0: The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary and is made possible by the generous financial support of our listeners and friends. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Groff. I'm the host of the podcast and Director of Advancement and Admissions here at the school. And I have the pleasure of welcoming into the studio by Zoom this morning, Dr. Carl Truman. Dr. Truman, thank you for joining
1: me. It's great to be with you, Zach. I hope all is well with you in uh, Greenville. Yes, it's
0: sunny and and beautiful, as I'm sure it is in western Pennsylvania.
1: Uh, It's beautiful, but not quite so sunny at the moment.
0: (laughs) Um, Dr. Truman would be familiar to many of our listeners, but for those who are tuning in, perhaps for the first time, he is Professor of Biblical and Religious Studies at Grove City College in Grove City, Pennsylvania. He's a minister in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church and written for a number of academic and popular outlets, including First Things, the Melios, the Gospel Coalition, and various platforms hosted by our friends at the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. He is the author of several book-length works of history and cultural analysis, the latest of which is our focus on today's podcast. Now it's worth mentioning that much of the material we will be discussing today came out of research conducted through the course of Dr. Truman's year spent as the William E. Simon Fellow in Religion and Public Life at Princeton University. His new book, recently published by Crossways is entitled The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to Sexual Revolution. And in the book, Dr. Truman presents an historical account of the roots and development of the sexual revolution as a symptom rather than the cause of the human pursuit of meaning through identity. Now, Dr. Truman, over the past several months, you have given uh, several interviews about this book and its contents. I have found these interviews very helpful even as I work through the book myself. And for high-level overviews of the book, I would refer any listeners today to those interviews with Dr. Jonathan Master, Dr. James Dolezal on the Theology on the Go podcast, or with Dr. Albert Moeller on the Thinking in Public podcast. But for those who are not yet familiar with your work and interest in matters of human identity in modern cultural and intellectual history, can you tell us what led you to take on this significant research and writing project?
1: That's a good question. There are a whole host of sort of factors that that played into this. One of them was Rod Dreher at the American Conservative, a friend. He wanted uh, someone and an approached me about it to write uh, an introduction to the thought of Philip Reef, a sociologist whose work I use quite extensively in the book. Second, I'd, you know, I I was at a stage in my career where I'd pretty much said everything I wanted to say about church history and was looking for another interesting project. I have the attention span of a squirrel, so I was looking for something, you know, is there anything else out there interesting other than church history? Uh, and thirdly, uh, I'd become very uh, intrigued by the statement, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, uh, uh, how that had come to be. Uh, not simply uh, plausible but uh, but almost compulsory in terms of having to accept its plausibility in society and Finally, I was interested in the the general question for for christians of of how and why has the sexual revolution apparently happened so fast and carried. All before it, to to the extent that, you know, who would have thought that uh, sexuality would be the issue on which things like freedom of religion, freedom of speech would be hanging by a threat. it, It appeared to come out of nowhere. And I wanted to get at the historical roots for why that happened now why would this narrative why would why is the narrative and
0: analysis you put forward in this book important for christians to consider today you said that was one of your intended audiences particularly with regards to sexual revolution and the answer may seem obvious but um but i think that you give a particular answer to that question in your book why is this important for christians today
1: I think the main reason is that that Christians, like, like a lot of people in general, we tend to think symptomatically. We tend to see the symptoms and treat them in isolation. We tend to think that the problem with gay marriage is gay marriage, and therefore, if we can just get the Supreme Court to, to rule the right way, problem solved. What I wanted to do in this book was make Christians realize that although the sexual revolution represents perhaps the most dramatic set of symptoms of the modern condition. Those symptoms are reflective of a much deeper underlying condition, a transformation really in in how human beings think of themselves and their place in the world. And and that, I think, has a a couple of uh, implications for Christians. One, I think it it stops us from a naive belief that electing the right guy as president or getting the right Supreme Court justice will solve the problem. I think it makes us realize the problem is much bigger than that. That's not to say that those things aren't good. It isn't good to have thoughtful Supreme Court justices, presidents with integrity, et cetera, et cetera. Those are good things, but the problem is much deeper, much greater than than any single person or single institution can can solve. Secondly, I think there's an apologetic dimension to this. Uh, And we know when we read the book of Acts, Paul, Paul doesn't just shout Bible verses loudly at people he meets. He always seems to have an understanding, we might say, of where they're coming from. Yes, they're all sinners, but he knows that the sinful way of human beings' thinking is very culturally specific And if you really want to engage somebody, you've got to understand to some extent how they think about the world. So the second aspect, I think, of this book is I wanted to try to help Christians not only see the size of the problem, but also see the specific nature of how the problem of sin manifests itself today. And thirdly, I hope flowing on from that, there's also pastoral Implications of this. I mean, the one hand, uh, uh, the pastoral implication of point one might be that that pastors would be would be uh, would do well to to teach their people that no, you know, getting X elected is not going to solve the problem. We we have a much bigger issue here. But also, I think pastorally engaging with those who uh, have been damaged by the sexual revolution understanding the nature of that damage and why they think the way they do. Uh, I remember hearing uh, his Roman Catholic Archbishop, Archbishop Charles Chaput, talking about the sexual revolution. Now, I'm not putting an imprimatur on Roman Catholicism here, but I was very struck hearing him in a discussion once, and somebody was talking in a rather blasé fashion about the sexual revolution, and he said, you know, I spend every day of my life listening to the damage of the sexual revolution in the confessional. Don't tell me that it's a breezy fun thing. There's real human carnage involved. And I think anything that enables us to understand the dynamics and the nature of the sexual revolution will hopefully inform our pastoral strategies in dealing with those Christians who've been rescued from it or who continue to battle with that as the the evil within their own soul at this point, of which any pastor I think knows that a large number of Christians in our highly pornified world their struggle is with with elements of the sexual revolution that's right
0: and and profound if not blatantly obvious just looking around at the cultural artifacts that surround us today and 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 I I appreciate though how you brought that down even into the confessional so to speak uh, with uh, with your friend and um but you know even Protestant ministers we know from our counseling oh, yeah. sessions and and just the looks on people's faces when we're preaching on making particular applications that these are real and pressing matters. And, you know, for my generation, I'm a millennial, loud and proud. And in my generation, we are not just the children, but now the grandchildren of the generation of 68. And so even in our personal histories, uh, you know, our our family trees are blood red with divorce and, and sexual infidelity and, and just like you said the human carnage of the sexual revolution. And so when we look at your book and just the title, what you're what what it's really about is how cultural amnesia and expressive individualism kind of come together together, leading to the sexual revolution. Again, this is a, a historical treatment, not so much a polemical work in and of itself. Is that yeah. an accurate way of putting it?
1: Yes. Uh, I mean, there, there are polemics to come from me on this, but what I, what I felt I needed to do at the start was I needed to write the book with the footnotes. I needed to write the book where the hard research was done, the narrative was mapped out and carefully analyzed. Uh, I needed, if you like, to establish my my foundation in order then to be able to, to write pointedly about other issues that it touches on. It's the story of the self is it's like an octopus. I remember having lunch with a philosopher friend in Princeton when I was writing and he said, what are you writing on? And I told him, he said, I don't even know where I'd begin with that. It's like an octopus. You grab hold of two legs and the six legs flapping around. (laughs) So I needed to get the basic narrative nailed down in order then to to start making the pointed applications in in further works and and, and articles. So it's not a polemic. But at the heart of it lies this this notion of expressive individualism. My, My major thesis is the way we think about ourselves now is we tend to think that we tend to think of ourselves as that which goes on inside our heads. And we tend to think of happiness as an inner sense of psychological peace or satisfaction. Whereas in previous times, we assumed that our identity was much more to do with how we fitted into the way society was already established. If I'm born in the Middle Ages, hey, I'm going to grow up to be a peasant farmer just like my dad. I need to learn the skills of peasant farming to fit in. Now, I, I need to say here, I, I don't regard the rise of expressive individualism as a, as a totally bad thing. Uh, there are many good aspects of it as well. It's, it's just what it is. But today, we tend to think of, I need to grow up and, and find uh, those things that satisfy me, and the world needs to be changed to accommodate me and my psychological needs. And that's a big, big shift. And that plays into the notion of cultural amnesia. Because when you start to think that society, the way society is, is not part of the solution. It's not what I have to learn to fit into, but is actually something that stands in the way of me uh, being who I truly am, then what I call cultural amnesia sets in, and that is the deliberate sloughing off, forgetting, repudiation, annihilation of the past. Because what is the past? The past is the history of how this corrupting society that's preventing me from being me came into being and so those are two sort of big strands of, of the narrative I tell and, and I think Christians one of the points I try to make in the book is we are complicit in this uh we too uh you know, we now have a choice of churches to go to and if we're honest You know, we may want to make the case that our church is the one with the most biblical form of worship. But isn't it interesting how often we tend to identify the most biblical form of worship with the one that we also happen to quite like (laughs) and which sort of, you know, satisfies us. I'm an Englishman. I'm not going to go to a church where I wave my arms around and dance in the aisle. (laughs) I'm just not. You're not inclined toward (laughs) that. I'm definitely not inclined towards that. And if I'm honest, I have to say, so, you know, my my Presbyterian Reformed convictions, they are convictions, but I'd be lying if they said they didn't also reflect certain elements of my cultural and personal psychological preferences of course and, and that's quite all right now how do you how do
0: you intend for this book to be deployed in service to the church do you envision it being a, a tool of discipleship uh, for the laity a resource for pastors and elders to refer to or a, a textbook for seminarians and undergraduate
1: students like your students or or kind of all of the above I certainly hope that the material will be used in all of the those areas. I think the book itself is—it's going to be a tough book for for some people to read. People who don't typically read books are going to find it a—you uh, uh, know—400 pages is a lot. I'm actually working. Crossway already had me working on a condensed abbreviation. Not, not an actually strictly an abbreviation of the book, but a short book covering similar themes with discussion questions at the end of every chapter. Yes, uh, Grove have provided me with two wonderful research assistants, and I've said to them, "I don't do discussion questions. You need to do the discussion questions for me." <laughs> but uh, so I'm going to produce a, a shorter book. Where, where I hope this book makes its immediate impact is I hope that pastors, maybe elders thoughtful lay people consider it worth a read sit down and and really wrestle with the ideas certainly undergraduate students i hope will will get hold of it uh, and and read it so i i hope that the book itself will will have some impact but i suspect the the sheer length in our high pressure time is at a premium world the sheer length will make it it tough uh, for people to sit down and read cover to cover
0: Yeah, certainly. Well, well, as we move into the content of the book, the one point I do wish to make here at the head of the the discussion is that you know, as as long as this book may seem, even to some of our listeners, and I think my listenership here on this podcast generally are reading people. But as long as this as this book may seem, as lengthy as it may be, it is uh, much briefer than wading through the seventeen or so thinkers with whom you substantially engage <laughs> in the course of the book. And so I noted no fewer than that many, and and ranging. From the Enlightenment philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau to the father of psychotherapy Sigmund Freud to the feminist authors Janice Raymond and Germaine Greer and their detractors, but there are three twentieth-century thinkers in particular whom, if you just took those three and their corpus of writing, would be would fill a library: Philip Reeve, Charles Taylor, and Alistair McIntyre, who proved to be of central importance to understanding the historical reality which you're addressing in the book. Why are these three men you've already mentioned Reef, but why are these three men so important for understanding our current cultural or perhaps anti-cultural moment?
1: Start with Reef. Uh, Reef I think is useful Partly because he first of all identifies the, the notion of the therapeutic and this rise of what he calls psychological man, what I call ex- the expressive individual, that life is all about making me feel happy inside, but he's also useful, I think, as a, a thinker about culture. He's 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 taking his cue from Freud, but actually on a point where I think Freud was was by and large correct. Uh, That is that that culture is all about the transmission by institutions, by practices, et cetera, the values of one generation to the next. And cultures are defined by that which they forbid. In other words, you can go to the heart of a culture by looking at the behavior that it finds unacceptable. And one of the things that that does when you apply it to today, of course, is, wow, uh, the whole idea of something being sexually unacceptable has almost vanished from our culture now. Pedophilia would be one that thankfully remains in place, but it's almost unique on that front. And typically pedophilia is repudiated on grounds of lack of consent rather than an intrinsic wickedness to the act itself. Well, if Reef is correct and cultures are defined by by their sexual codes and that which they forbid, that puts us in a very very precarious position particularly drawing on another point of reef when we think that historically elites, teachers, politicians, schools, etc., etc., their task is the preservation of the past culture or the modification of it for the the, the contemporary situation. All of those groups are now committed to cultural amnesia, to the overthrowing of, of the values of the past, to the denigrating of the values of the past. That, too, means that we're at a very, very dangerous and unstable point in culture, and we are recording just a week after the uh, uh, the, the crisis in the capital in in DC. Now, I don't, I don't want to make too much of that and say that's the wave of the future, but that's the kind of thing that happens when cultures start to fracture, fragment, fall apart, when a sense of, of coherence and identity begins to disappear. So Reef is very interesting on that front. Taylor was useful for me. Uh, he's he's very good on expressive individualism and the rise of expressive individualism. And I think he's correct in seeing Rousseau and the Romantics as the point at which that that modern psychological self starts to really gain traction culturally. He's also very helpful for helping us to understand that identity, even though the expressive individual thinks that identity is a monologue, it's actually a dialogue. We tend to think we can be whatever we want to be, but as Taylor points out, the thing about identity is not only that you want to be yourself, you also want to belong. And that means that you have to look to society for the frame of reference of belonging. And that, I think, goes to why uh, the sexual revolution. It's, it's not akin to, well, if my neighbor is gay, it neither picks my pocket nor breaks my leg. That's fine. I don't have to approve of him, but, but he's free to do what he wants to do. It's not enough. Your neighbor wants to belong. And that means your neighbor wants full acknowledgement from society, from everyone in society for his identity. And that's why we, we face such polarized and, and, uh, uh, highly charged politics surrounding the issue of identity today. So Taylor was very helpful on that point. McIntyre is perhaps the one I use least, but McIntyre's central insight is this, that in a world where society no longer agrees on, on what he calls the meta-narrative, the big story of what that society is, uh, ethics uh, claims to, to what is good and what is bad become little more than expressions of emotional preference. Uh, we might say that homosexuality is wrong, McIntyre would say, but in today's society what you're really saying is I personally disapprove of homosexuality or I personally disapprove of abortion because we have no agreed framework in which to uh, to say uh, that something is right, wrong, good or bad. And that leads to increasing anger in ethical and moral and public debates, because there is no basis upon which we can agree beyond who shouts loudest as to to what is right and wrong. And again, that goes to much of what sadly appears to be happening in the West in general and America in particular at this particular juncture in time.
0: Now, as confessional Presbyterians, you're a minister in the OPC, I'm a licentiate in the PCA on the road to ordination. We emphatically champion the sufficiency of Scripture for all of life. And and understanding Scripture to be our one infallible rule of faith and practice... How can we appropriate, then, the philosophical and even theological output of those who do not share our commitment to biblical truth, and particularly these thinkers, but even others beyond it? This is kind of a general question, but if you want to drill down on it for your uh, project here, I think that would be a helpful thing to unpack for our listeners.
1: Sure. Well, I'm a big believer in, uh, in general revelation. I'm a big believer in common grace. Uh, It seems to me that, for example, human beings have a moral sense. We may disagree on the content of that morality sometimes, but all human beings have an intuitive sense of, of justice, even if they disagree, for example, on what justice is. With the current debates about social justice, I don't disagree with those with whom I disagree about the importance of justice and that human beings should be concerned about that. I may disagree with the definitions they put forward the heavens show forth the glory of the Lord. I, I think that we, what we have in thinkers like Reef, uh, uh, McIntyre, and Taylor, we have resources there with great insights into how societies and cultures function that uh, can help us as Christians decode what's going on. Bottom line is, do you need to have read Charles Taylor in order to be an effective one-on-one evangelist? Absolutely not. Would it have been helpful to read him? It it may well be so in in certain contexts. So, in using these figures, I'm not wanting to deny the sufficiency of Scripture at all. I think what I'm doing, if you like, is is you know to use the old cliche. I'm plundering the Egyptians. Uh, I'm I'm doing the Daniel thing. You know, the church is in exile here. So, wow, let's use some of the wisdom of the world around us that is not inconsistent with the Bible or is even reflected in the Bible at key points, but may be expressed more sharply uh, than some Christian thinkers in non-Christian thinkers. Let's use them. Freud has a deep understanding that human beings, left to their own devices, are dark, destructive, and evil creatures. Now, I root that in the fall. He sees that as an intrinsic part of human nature. But setting aside that difference, once we're dealing with the actual phenomenon of humanity as we find it, I think Freud has some interesting things to say. Yeah, and that's where you make this point, where he differs from Rousseau, who
0: holds forth the, the noble savage and the return to a state of nature as a positive good, whereas Freud lifts up repression of those impulses as a positive good for the maintenance of civilization or what have you. And you you engage with those discussions. I think it's important for Christians to thoughtfully engage with these discussions, because not only is all truth God's truth, but we need to be aware of our surroundings, so to speak, and and to be sharp ourselves. Now, one of the points you make toward the end of part two is interesting, and, and that's that modern society has politicized everything. In other words, there are no private pre-political spaces. Uh, I'm fascinated by the idea of political space. I, I wrote a paper on this during the Arab Spring when I worked on uh, my undergraduate degree in political science, and, and the, the whole concept has always just stuck with me. Um, and you, you draw out the reality here that the family unit is political, scout troops are political, pop music is now inherently political, not just the protest songs, but all of it. And insofar as everything, therefore, is political, everything is likewise Public, It's of public interest. And yet, and yet, you and I continue to receive privacy notices for everything from medical insurance providers to our banks to our favorite clothing retailers and preferred social media platforms. So how how would you explain this dynamic between the modern right to or perhaps more appropriately put yearning for privacy, which is a modern concept in and of itself? and the abolition of pre-political space which has attended it. What, what ramifications would this have on the church, particularly on those called to be elders, pastors, and overseers of Christ's flock?
1: Yeah, it's a huge question, a difficult question. I think you, you're pointing there towards something that there, there is a kind of what, what Charles Taylor would call a sort of cross-pressure. Ideas stand in conflict with each other. I mean, the great one in some ways is, we might say, is freedom and belonging. Modern man wants to be completely free, but he also wants to belong. How do you tie those two together? I would say you tie them together in the gospel. You know, if the sun sets you free, you shall be free indeed in Christ, identified with him, you're actually free. Or we might say in marriage, you know, it's in surrendering my self-will to my wife, in love to her, that I become truly free in marriage. So, But but modernity has kind of torn these things apart and yet still wants to have its cake and eat it. So, yes, we do long for privacy, uh, but it's no longer available to us. Uh, I think, by and large, we kid ourselves. We kid ourselves that we can have privacy. Those privacy notices, I think, serve almost uh, uh, as those signs in restaurant washrooms, you know, employees must wash their hands. Um, they're trying to persuade, they, that's employees know they're going to wash their hands. They're trying to persuade the customer that their employees wash their hands. And I think those privacy notices are trying to sort of reassure us that, that we have privacy, even when we don't. Uh, we're incredibly, incredibly vulnerable. How that plays into to the church, uh, that's, That's hard. And I think we see some unfortunate manifestations of this in, again, I hope it's not just my buttoned up English background coming out here, but I don't like the pulpit being used as the confessional. Uh, I'm not over convinced that I I took this view when I was a pastor that when discipline cases, some discipline cases came up in the church, uh, it was counterproductive to make them public if innocent people were going to be harmed by the fallout, that there's a place for privacy there, but that, that, that goes against the culture now, where to be authentic is to let it all hang out in open. I, I think that's a real pressing pressure for, for the church. So the privacy issue, I think, is one that culturally we need to think about in terms of pastoral practice. The political issue, I think, is very pressing for the church. We have this idea that uh, well, a lot of Christians think that their religious freedom will be protected by the First Amendment. That, that's, that's where we go to. But, of course, the First Amendment does not give religious freedom absolute status. You know, I, I can't t- today decide that, hey, I'm going to start a, a cult of Moloch in Slippery Rock, Pennsylvania, and everybody's going to come and sacrifice their daughter on a Sunday. That's not protected under the First Amendment. Uh so I think that what we what we face, what we have to understand about religious freedom is religious freedom is allowed to the extent that society considers it to be a good for society in general. And with the rise of the nuns and with the abolition of the private space, the idea that you can do things in private that that aren't harmful to society in general. As those things disappear, then I think one of the things we can expect is tremendous pressure being brought to bear on the churches. First of all, that Christians, yeah, you can be a Christian on a Sunday in a worship service, but it's not going to be, we're not going to allow that to to have an impact on how you behave at work Monday to Friday. That'll be the first phase. And I think the second phase will be, oh, and and now we're going to start paying attention to what you're doing on a Sunday, because you can't slice Sunday off from the rest of the week and claim that as private or personal space.
0: That's all very insightful and things that pastors are going to have to think through. And again, your book is a work of history. It's setting the stage for having those conversations. It's not necessarily answering those questions, but the material you bring to bear and to the fore is is extremely important for understanding how best to work through those discussions within church and pastoral leadership. Now, what implications does your book have on how Christians discuss issues of human sexuality in terms of our wider social and political context, particularly as we think through the ideas of gay Christianity that are, that are having uh, greater influence <clears throat> even in Reformed churches and
1: uh, concepts such as costly celibacy and, and these kinds of things? Well, just as an aside, the, the very language of costly celibacy is interesting because it speaks of of celibacy within the context where sexual activity is seen as the norm, and therefore lack of sexual activity is seen as abnormal or something that one sacrifices. You know, if you're an Anglican and you observe Lent, normally you eat whatever you want during the year, and then you sacrifice something during Lent as a way of expressing your your commitment to, to the Lord. To talk about celibacy is sacrificial. Are you married, Zach? Yes, married with five children. So with I'm clearly children. not
0: celibate, though I am chaste, <laughs> I can say that.
1: Yeah, but I wouldn't say that it was sacrificial of you not to play away when you're traveling away from home. I would say that's your duty. You're a husband. It's your duty to be, to be chaste. And I think that, you know, the very language of, uh, uh, of sacrificial relative to the curbing of sexual appetites is, is problematic. To get to the broader question, I think a couple of things come out here. One, I think we need to realize that sexuality is identity today in a way that the Bible doesn't really deal with sex as an identity. The Bible deals with sex as a behavior between two adults designed for various things, but not designed to provide them with their identity. Uh, And therefore, I think that movements that... Uh, where we talk about gay celibate Christians. There's there's a category mistake going on there. Now, let me just say, I very much appreciate the fact that somebody whose sexual desire is leading them in a homosexual direction, I think their celibacy is something that should be affirmed and encouraged and supported. My problem is not with the celibate dimension of that. My problem is with what I consider to be a, a concession to modern notions of identity, that gay is being used. I think that's problematic. Uh, You know, and and I'd be happy to sort of flip the coin and say, and and that's why, you know, I don't describe myself as a straight Christian because actually I don't regard my straightness as my identity. I regard sex as something that one does, not something that one is. And I think that's the biblical position. So I think the first thing one would have to say is we need to to think very carefully uh, about identity labels. Uh, where I think it may become pressing for many Christians, of course, might be in use of pronouns. I had my first email from an academic press yesterday asking me to do something from a, a lady, who's, a woman whose name was, uh, uh, she was obviously female, but at the bottom I had in brackets her, her preferred pronouns, which were, guess what, she and her, which was a great relief uh, to me. But there's a sort of I think where where Christians may well start to feel the pressure is in the workplace when you're, you're told you've got to use the preferred pronoun of this particular person. Then I think it gets tricky as, as a pastor. There's a big difference between the general rules one learns in the classroom and each particular application of them. Uh, and I would go as far as to say I, th- I think that using preferred pronouns is generally a very bad idea but I wouldn't want to rule out that there might be a pastoral circumstance in where that might be a short-term strategy uh, in order to try to help somebody see the error of their ways. But I think the pronoun issue in the workplace will be where it comes to bite for many, many Christians. And, you know, I'm still thinking through that. Some may listen to that and say, well, Truman's just given a compromised answer. I would say, no, Truman's actually given an answer that reflects the state of his own thinking at this point that these are complex issues that we've really got to think through you
0: know for the for the average christian in the workplace the engineer the the banker the the lawyer what have you uh working in a particular environment where this is being required it's a matter of uh, losing your job or not which is one ethical dilemma but for the pastor it's a little bit more mushy in that you run up you know you have let's say a family member for whom you've been praying with a family for their conversion. And he comes in, and he wants to be referred to as she and her and Susan. Now, as the pastor, do you? how do you navigate that? On one yeah. hand, does acquiescing to his desire to be referred to as ma'am uh, pose a risk to the maintenance of Christian integrity and the truth, yeah. but then on the other hand, does <laughs> refusing to do so break Christ's commandment to, uh, to have compassion and to bear with and, and love one's neighbor in a long-suffering sense? Now, surely loving doesn't include uh, accommodating delusion. And, and lies. But at the same time, you know, do you run roughshod over somebody? How do you navigate that? And it is tricky. You know, I have my position that we don't acquiesce. We don't accommodate. Yeah. And I have people I love who, you know, they want to be referred to as something which they're not. And I'm, I'm going to refuse to do that, but to do so in a loving manner that yeah. doesn't run roughshod over somebody and, and, totally destroy your witness, I, I guess.
1: And I think at this point as well, we need to be very charitable with our leaders on this one because mistakes are going to be made. Absolutely. And and it's not that the, as you point out, it may, it may be that the person has not made the mistake because they're, they want to apostatize or deny Christ. It may be a mistake because their heart has overruled their head at some point. And I think we need in these very uncertain and choppy waters to be very charitable and very, tolerance of of the mistakes our leaders make you know you don't pull the trigger on the pistol the first time the person crosses the line so i would make a plea to our listeners you know pray about this pray about this and and try to be as compassionate as you can particularly with your pastors who are facing very very difficult situations
0: and the reality is uh, pastors and ministers and elders are going to be working with Uh, family members of of these kinds of individuals much more sorting through ethical dilemmas whether or not to go to that wedding, whether or not to to use the pronoun themselves, and asking you for advice as to what to do. That's really where it's going to come down. You know, I I know we're running up on our time here, and you are an historian, and so I want to close today with a question of historical interests for the Church in our present cultural moment. What historical precedent, if any, do we have for the challenges facing the church today, and what can we learn from our forefathers in the faith?
1: Yeah, it's it's a difficult one because in some ways there is no I, uh, there is no exact point of comparison. I myself go to the second century. Uh, now, the second century is not the same as, as as because the second century was a long-standing Roman Empire was a long-standing pagan society uh, in which. Christianity was regarded as a marginal sect of potentially seditious and immoral significance. You know, it, they, they, they wouldn't sacrifice to Caesar when that was required. And they husband's wives called each other brother and sister. They got together and ate body and blood. They they were misunderstood and regarded as seditious and and immoral. Now, I think if you move to the church today you know, We're in a situation where the society is de-Christianizing. It's not that society has never known Christianity. It's that society knows what Christianity is and has rejected it. So there is a difference. Having said that, I do think the, the take on Christianity by the wider culture, it's marginal, it's subversive, it's immoral, is very similar to the second century. So I would, would say second century maybe the analogy. And what was the secret to the church's success, if we can call it that way, humanly speaking, uh, in the second century? <clears throat> I think it was faithful community. These people looked after each other. Now don't hear me, Truman, saying social gospel. No preaching. No, no, no. The church preaches. The church administers the sacraments. Absolutely basic. But the church was also renowned or became renowned for the way it looked after its own and the way it cared for those outside. And Jesus himself, I don't think he was preaching the social gospel when he said, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples by the love you have for each other. We have it from, if you like, our very own commander in chief. We have it from Jesus himself, the very foundation of the church, uh, that community will be a potent witness to the world around and I think that has to be the way the way we 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 go about it, for better or ill. However representative some of the people who've been doing some of the things in the public domain have been over recent weeks, uh, however representative they are of of evangelicalism or Christianity, and, and I hope and pray they are not representative. But Christianity in America has a huge image problem at this point, and the only way to solve that is to. Be Christians with integrity. We can't engage in some spinning propaganda campaign. Be Christians with integrity. Love each other. Worship faithfully. Love each other. Be good members of your Christian community in your local community and pray that God will give the increase.
0: That's a godly and biblical um, answer. That is what we call in our presbyteries, pious advice. <laughs> but perhaps uh, we can go further says than that. a slightly
1: pejorative sound to me. But, uh... <laughs>
0: no, we can go further than that. That's a biblical injunction to love one another to be faithful yeah, in community. Yeah. I appreciate that. That's as good a note to end on as any. I do commend to all of our listeners to read this book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. It will challenge you for certain, no matter what your reading level is, but uh, you, will, you will glean much from it it will be helpful to you, particularly if you are tasked and called to leadership in the Church of Christ. Dr. Truman, thank you for your time this morning, and thank you for writing this excellent book.
1: Thanks for having me on, Zach.
0: Thank you for listening to this edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. To help ensure that we can continue to produce content from a Reformed and Confessional Presbyterian perspective, please consider making a gift of support in any amount at gpts.edu. For more information about Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, please visit gpts.edu.